Well, Derek's going to come and bring us our our reading this evening. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the passage that Norman will be helping us think through in just a little while. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. The words will appear on screen. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on earth to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience in him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions, He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this well for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. That evening is burned on my memory. For more than 10 years, our family had been working with the assumption that I was going to become a doctor. 
And that evening, I sat my mum and dad down to tell them I really didn't want to do that. No insult to those of you who are doctors or wanting to become doctors, but there were lots of reasons, not least my extreme squeamishness, why it wasn't going to work. I delivered my message. There was what, is, uh, what could be referred to as a long silence. And then my mom said, well, so long as you do something worthwhile with your life, What on earth does that mean? (laughs) At that moment, I wasn't a Christian, but I'd been brought up in church circles and um, in trying to uh, execute the hermeneutics of what she just said and understand what she meant. I, uh, I couldn't help making reference to the kind of implicit hierarchy of worthwhileness that a lot of Christians seem to operate with. At the top of the hierarchy, um, uh, I'm going to have to drive it from here, apparently. Oh, I know. Let me just try plugging this in again. It's the technologist's demonstration effect. (laughs) Um, There we go. At the top of the hierarchy, we have Christian ministry, full-time work explicitly for the Lord, Then, and this is a simplified diagram, I could give you the much more detailed one, but then we have caring professions, broadly understood, people who are working um, to make other people's lives better. And then at the bottom, you have the filthy lucre brigade, those who work in commerce, who just make money. Now... um, I'm not claiming this is correct, but it's a powerful idea. And over the years, I've talked with many people in and around Christian circles that are willing to confess, given a certain amount of encouragement, to to either holding deep down in an unarticulated way or having held such a view as this. And it's complicated because, you know, Christian ministry is about God and, and, and you know, commerce is about money, and you can't serve God and money. Which is it going to be? And it all is terribly confused, and it's all terribly wrong. Because the Bible doesn't make a big deal out of career choices. We do. We anguish over them. But the Bible doesn't. The guidance of God, yes. But the Bible doesn't position some careers as being terribly noble, and other careers as being terribly mundane. The Bible is much more concerned with character. In New Testament terms, in building the character of Christ in us, that we might be formed in him. It's much more concerned with who we are than what we do, how we make a living. The Bible also reveals the story of divine salvation through the stories of Working people, faithful working people, sometimes not so faithful working people. And there's a huge range of them. In fact, I love the range. There are, there are nomadic uh, sheep herders. There are farmers. There are slaves, civil servants, rulers of various different kinds, leather workers, 
merchants, and even, and I really like this, a wine waiter. And he's one of the good guys. The story of God's salvation is revealed through people, many of whom aren't at the top of that wrong-headed pyramid of worthwhileness. Some of them are. But actually, God has worked through people all over the map, as it were, all over the hierarchy. Some years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from somebody who said, I'd like to invite you to come and deliver a talk to uh, a group of the senior executives, the global leadership team, of one of the world's largest tobacco companies. Uh, now, that's not normally my thing. And, um, and uh, as I was trying to say no, he said, no, no, hear me out. Because in their wisdom, this tobacco company or these tobacco company executives have realized that they do international business and around the world, there are lots of people for whom faith is a big deal. And they would like you to come and explain to them what Christianity is and how it makes a difference in the world of of work and trade. And that was an invitation I couldn't say no to. And so I went along to, uh, to speak to them at a breakfast meeting. It was a really good breakfast, and I had to speak. But anyway, um, uh, I was able, they paid me a fee to explain, tell them the gospel. And uh, there was a time of questions and answers, and it was, it was a great experience, actually. And right at the end of the questions, I said, right, last question. And the youngest member of that global management team put his hand up and he said, I'd just like to say that in the last couple of weeks, I started to follow Jesus Christ. Well, the entire program for the morning got torn up. They pulled a chair out and they sat him down and grilled him. It was a genuine grilla Christian for, for a less than two weeks old Christian. But in the world of work, strange things happen like that, and the Lord works just as he does in the world of church and in hospitals. Because this is the Lord's wor- world, and he calls each of us to do the strange, to the strange callings that uh, he's prepared for us, the good works that he's called, uh, he's prepared in advance for us to do, and it's thrilling to follow the Lord in the workplace. People sometimes talk about the sacred secular divide. Mark Green, uh, I think, is a friend of this church and has spoken and written widely about it. He says the sacred secular divide is the all too common belief that some parts of, uh, of our life are sacred and really important to God. Prayer, Sunday services, church-based activities, but that others are secular and irrelevant to God. Work, school, university, sport, the arts, music, rest, sleep, hobbies. It's a lie that distorts God's character and severely limits our everyday enjoyment of him. Tragically, It also severely limits our understanding of our everyday role in God's purposes. 
Well, this series of talks that uh, this is the first of is uh, one attempt to, uh, to address that sacred-secular divide. Next week, we'll be looking at the arts, one of the areas mentioned there. Um, and the sacred-secular divide is another of these unbiblical ideas that nonetheless has a, a deep hold uh, in, in many of our psyches. Actually, the biblical divide that we should be paying attention to, the one that is absolutely there in Scripture, is what could be called the who's in charge divide, or if you want workplace talk, who's the boss divide. Is it God or is it me? And that question is, um, is quite central to the passage that was read earlier and that we're going to be looking at. It began as follows. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. The context is that the um, children of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They started off in Egypt uh, where they were delivered by the Lord from slavery. They wandered through the desert And they ended up, and now they're in Moab, just about to enter the promised land. All of the wandering is behind them. The thing they've been looking forward to is ahead of them. And this is the Lord, through Moses, speaking to his people to give them that um, pep talk before they press on into the promised land uh, that he's prepared for them. The passage continues, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. To humble and test you. How, how did the Lord test the people? Well, if you want the, the full answer, read the, the book of Exodus and... Uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, But one of the testings, surely, was that it's hard to live in a desert. And um, estimates vary, but um, many people think that there were were about 2 million children of Israel. Certainly, we have a census where 600,000 men alone, adult males, were counted. And with uh, women and children, that takes you to about... Two million. Well, feeding one person in the desert is pretty hard. In a dry, arid, infertile place, how on earth do you keep a small nation alive? Talk about testing times. That's incredibly testing. And if ever there was a context where you could put no confidence in the flesh, to, to use New Testament language, then it's this one. There's just nothing to live on. How are you going to sustain life? It would take a miracle. And the Lord didn't just test people, but he humbled them. What did that mean? The passage continues. He humbled you causing you to hunger, and then, oh, hang on, it really did take a miracle, feeding you with manna, that 
foodstuff that just appeared on the ground outside the entrance to the, to the tents every morning, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. A line that was precious to Jesus when he was tempted and tested in the desert. Your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't swell during these 40 years. Yes, the Lord humbled these people by teaching them the absolute uselessness of self-sufficiency. In this context, they couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't look after themselves. They had to rely on him for the food they drank, there was the miracle of the manna, the quails that brought in meat, and also the water flowing out of rock. The Lord humbled them by showing them that they were weaker than they thought, but he also showed them that he was stronger and more gracious than they thought. Peter Um, writing uh, to the early church, uh, picks up the theme. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And here in the book of Deuteronomy is a brilliant illustration of this in action, of people casting their lives on God. Initially, not because they were holy, but because they had no choice. And God fed them and watered them in a barren desert. This was, if you will, the humility of utter dependence. Many, many years later, Jesus would teach uh, his people as part of the prayer that he gave us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Do you take your daily bread for granted? Are these just religious words that we utter? In the desert... There was no mistaking the fact that if one day the Lord decided he wasn't going to answer the prayer, these people were going to die. They were utterly humbled by their dependence on God. And there they were, in the desert, learning this lesson. What are the contexts in your life where you learn these lessons of dependence on God, where you learn uh, this humility of utter dependence. For me, and for many of us, I think a big part of the answer to that is the workplace. Sometimes there are desert moments in work. I mean, some, let's be honest, even, even the most exciting work is sometimes... A bit boring. That's why it's called work. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's stressful. Sometimes you're utterly powerless to know what to do. Would you think I'm crazy? Perhaps you already do. But would you think I'm even crazier if I told you that I think I've learned more about prayer and dependence on God through cash flow management than, than just about anything else. If, if you work in a small business 
uh, and there isn't much money. And you can see that the amount of money is, is running low. Particularly in a small business, you can see the connection between that diminishing sum of money and the jobs of your colleagues and yourself. And how do you, how do you address the situation? Well, you can go and try and sell more stuff if you're working in a commercial entity. The trouble with selling is that all you can really do is say, would you like to buy my stuff? And if everybody says no thanks, what else can you do? You can pull off some accountant's tricks for a month or two, but, the, the, but then you hit the buffers. I had a situation where um, my, my personal assistant, who wasn't a Christian, uh, in the midst of one of these crises, she came in to my office and shut the door. And she said, you need to pray. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, why do you say that? And she said, because we're running out of money. And I said, why do you think I need to pray? She said, because I read your emails. I know we've been in this situation before, and you got people praying, and it came good. At the end of that week, we were cash out. We were done. And in order to avoid falling into um, uh, legal proceedings, we were going to have to wind up the company on Monday morning. And on Friday afternoon, my financial comp- controller came to me and he said, something funny going on with the bank account. I said, Sorry? He said, there are two big payments in there that shouldn't be there. I said, why? He said, I don't know. So we went and uh, made some inquiries, and we found that the two payments were from customers, actual customers of ours, but we hadn't invoiced either of them. So we called them up, because, I don't know, if you work in business, if I almost want to take a show of hands to see if anyone has ever received payment for invoices that haven't been issued. It just doesn't happen. Um, and here it was happening twice in the same afternoon, the, the business day before we had to put the company into liquidation. And um, we called them up, and they said almost exactly word for word the same thing. They said, yeah, we had some spare money, and we were going to lose it if we didn't spend it, so we thought we'd just advance it to you in lieu of whatever next invoice you might issue to us, which is really weird and a bit off. But, <laughs> but don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if we're Christians in the workplace, there's always going to be a miraculous answer like manna, but that sometimes the Lord humbles us. He tests us and he teaches us things. And it's been my pleasure in business to see that happening in community with others sometimes. And perhaps it's been your experience too. If not, I pray that it will be. The passage continues, Deuteronomy 8, 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What's the point of the Lord's discipline? It's that we might humble ourselves under his mighty hand, as Peter said. That we might actually believe that God is, well, God. 
that we would trust him, that we would make room in our hearts for Christ, that we would really, truly trust him. And um, if, you, if you don't go out of the home to a, to a workplace, if you work in the home, pray that the Lord might meet you in this way there. If you have another context, if you work in ministry in one of those apex of the, the wrong-headed hierarchy place, may you pray that the Lord will meet you and test you and teach you humility before him. Because it would be a terrible thing to have somebody in ministry that, that wasn't humbled before the Lord. It would be a terrible thing to have somebody working. My goodness, the caring professions are under so much stress at the moment. May you, if you work in those professions, know the Lord at work. May you have grace to trust him and to hold on to him, even in the desert, dry, arid times. And those, uh, actually, the the largest number of people uh, in the workplace who work in ordinary commerce, may you know this too. May that be a context in which you grow and develop in the faith. Now, here were the children of Israel standing on the threshold of entering the promised land, looking forward into it. And here's what the Lord says to them. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you out of the dry and arid desert into a good land, a land with brooks, water, thank the Lord, streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Sounds brilliant, doesn't it? After the desert, my goodness. Um, all of this richness. But um, it used to be that they just opened the door of the tent and the food was there that the Lord had left overnight. Now, okay, so there's wheat and barley, but that bread isn't going to make itself. It has to be planted and nurtured and harvested, and then the grain has to be milled, and the, the dough has to be kneaded, and the bread has to be baked, and then it has to be distributed And there's a whole complex supply chain with lots of different players in order to do this to feed a community. And the same with all of those other things as well. The the grapevines and the olives and the, the figs and pomegranates, the honey. They were coming to a place of blessing, but they were also coming to a place of work. Regular hard work because the Lord was resourcing them. Do you overlook the fact that the resources that we have for the incredible life that we enjoy are God's good gift to us? They're not the gift of Tesco, although we thank the Lord for the supply chain of Tesco and so on, but this comes from the Lord. Being humbled by him is is to recognize that. Even as you get into sophisticated 
technological society. And indeed, technology is, uh, is relevant here because the Lord was bringing them into a, a place where they could be on the cutting edge of new technology. That's a little pun for those who want to spot it because it's all about the iron, which uh, give you a sharper cutting edge than what went before. And the reason why it's so significant that the Lord says there's iron in them, there are hills, is because this happened at the precise moment when the Bronze Age was transitioning into the Iron Age. Remember 40 years ago, back in the tabernacle, all of the furnishings of the tabernacle, they were made of bronze. They were made of what was available. But now, here they were, coming into a place that had iron. This was a big deal. This is like the recent story about Sweden discovering a big deposit of lithium uh, and rare earth metals. Um, this was the, the key to the future, the key to, to wealth and the ability to make tools that would make it more efficient to, to farm this wonderful new land. The Lord was providing it. We're, we're going from a time where the Lord was giving people their food on a plate to a time where the Lord is providing instead the natural resources that they can use. And this is not, it is a a, a move from the miraculous to the ordinary, but it's not a move from the spiritual to the worldly because both methods are underwritten by God. One is no more spiritual than the other. They're both God's good gift for looking after his people. So uh, forget about that. In fact, this is a reversion to business as usual. If you look back at the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1, and I'll just take one little excerpt, where God has just created all things, if you can use the word just in that context, and... um, and he, he's created human beings. And he says, it says, the Lord blessed the people he had made. And he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Or if you will, tame it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Work is sometimes mischaracterized as being entirely a result of of the fall of, uh, of Adam and Eve. And perhaps the sweat and the toil part of it, some of the unpleasantness is, but here we are before that, with the Lord sending people out to, um, to work with the resources that he's given in, a, in an entirely positive way, to go into the creation and to steward it. Um, and so the people of Israel in the desert were reverting to um, that call that the Lord had given. But here's the thing. When they had had to rely on the Lord... 100% with no possibility of confusing things that, and thinking that they were somehow contributing to their own well-being. Now he's calling them to get involved, to roll up their sleeves, to do some work 
And there's a risk that the Lord is going to warn them about. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. There's a recap here, just in case you've forgotten. Um, That thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you. There it is again. So that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. You see, the problem, the problem with thinking that what we do in church is spiritual and what we do at work is just what we do is that we shut God out. And here the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. Just because you shed a little bit of sweat to help produce some wealth doesn't mean that it's not from God. You must not shut the Lord out. Indeed, this is the context for you to continue to be humbled and tested and to continue to give the praise that's due to him. Remember the who's in charge divide? That still applies. God's in charge. He's the one that we rely on. And so the passage comes to its conclusion. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Tacked in there, there's an extraordinary sentence. It is the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's not the devil. It's not your boss. It's not Apple or some other technology company. It's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so he confirms his covenant. And wealth is a topic that um, uh, deserves its own sermon. The Lord, however, um, has, uh, has much to say on the subject. And I'll say just a couple of things before we end. Because those of us who work in commerce really need to hear this. Wealth. There are many warnings in the scriptures about the dangers of wealth. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. In Matthew 6, we read of the threats of wealth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure, treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Don't love the wealth of this world too much. But the scriptures also teach that wealth brings opportunity. And it uses some very interestingly parallel language to do it. Here's what we read in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, look what's going to happen. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You can't serve God in money, says the Bible. But what we just read is that you can serve God with money. Making money just to aggrandize oneself is a soulless, terrible thing. In fact, wealth wealth selfishly pursued and hoarded is soul-destroying. But wealth righteously produced for use in the service of God has value for this world and the next. And it's the Lord who gives us the ability to do it. And there are so many reasons why we might work to produce wealth as a Christian We might do so to to resource and to bless the human family. So much need. Also to resource and bless the work of the gospel. And finally, to do the work of the gospel, to stand next to colleagues in the workplace as we work in, whether we're in commerce or in caring professions or in ministry and simply to let the light of Christ in us shine. To do what we were called to do, to be witnesses to him. Work is a context in which we can uh, bear fruit for Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to all sorts of different walks of life, giving us different skills. Thank you that, um, that you've described your church as a body made up of lots of different parts that can do different things and contribute different uh, uh, things to the overall community. Lord, for those who are searching to know what you've called them to, would you guide them? Would you lead them into the right path for their life? For those of us who might have lost our way a little bit, would you please bring us back on the right path? And for all of us, Lord, in the context where you've placed us, would you you continue to discipline us so that we might come forth as gold? Would you humble us under your mighty hand so that we might acknowledge you more and more as Lord and God and we as your people.
for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.